Well, you can take a seat. Give somebody a high five this morning, church. I am ready to go. Amen. Thank you, worship team. Well, grace and peace to you, church. I'm grateful that you all are here this morning, that you've made your, our worship service a part of your weekend this week. And we're in the second week of a series that we started last week that's titled, I Am, Jesus in His Own Words. And we find ourselves this morning in the second week of the season of Epiphany, a time of the year that the church has reflected on the person of Jesus uh, this weekend also is, I was just kind of thinking in my mind, it is Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, sort of uh, holiday weekends. So we got the extra day on Monday, uh, some of us off of work. And I just wanted to, uh, one of the things that I do is I, I remember that Martin Luther, MLK was not just a sort of activist, right? He was a pastor first and foremost. And I always make it a point on this weekend to read some of his letters or some of his sermons. And I would encourage you to do so. He teaches us tremendously about the person of Jesus. But in the weeks of Advent, we were reminded in the month of December that the world is in darkness and in need of a Savior. And that Savior arrives to us every year at Christmas and during the Christmas season. And it's during this season of Epiphany that we begin to unpack what kind of Savior has entered into the world in the Scriptures uh, and so to direct this effort, we are examining these seven statements in John's gospel known as the I am statements of Jesus. The second of these statements is found in our passage for reflection this morning that will begin in John chapter 8. If you have a Bible, you can flip open there. It will be in John chapter 8. But my hope for us this morning as we examine this second statement, I am the light of the world is that there would be two things perhaps that might happen here this morning. First, is that if you are here and you've not yet committed yourself to following Jesus, I hope that you might consider making that decision this morning. And second, if you have already committed yourself to following Jesus, my hope is that you might make a commitment to bearing witness to his salvation in our city and in your life. So these are the two hopes and aims of the sermon this morning, but let's read together John chapter 8. We'll be reading verses 12 through 20. John records Jesus' life this way. When Jesus began, spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees, as they always do, challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father. You don't know me, Jesus replied. <laughs> if you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your word in the ways that it illuminates truth. 
that Jesus, the light, illuminates truth to us about ourselves, about the world. And we ask, God, that you would extend to us the grace that we need to see. We ask that Jesus would be our light this morning to see. Give us ears to hear, we pray. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. And all the people of God said, amen. Well, our modern lives are dependent on light. Amen? Amen. We have cars, we have homes filled with lights, churches filled with lights, street lights, Christmas lights, smartphone screens. I mean, how many times have you seen people using their smartphone as a flashlight looking for something in the dark? I navigate my way through our dark house in the middle of the night with my phone instead of flipping on lights. We have so much light in the world today that we cannot even see the thousands and thousands of stars in the evening sky. There's a website, by the way, I looked this up, that'll show you how much light pollution exists in your city. We are not that different from LA, unfortunately. Light is an incredibly important part of our world, but it isn't just an important part. Light is a necessary part of life. We need light in order to have life. Light is a source of life on planet Earth. The greatest source of light for us on planet Earth is the sun. The way that light gives life to the Earth is a rather fascinating process, in fact. I don't know how many of you thought you were going to get a physics lesson this morning, but here we go. The Earth is a giant rock. Imagine this. It's a giant rock traveling through space at approximately 67,000 miles per hour. We are going 67 miles per hour flying through the universe. Who knows where we're actually traveling? But at the same time, the Earth is traveling at this speed. It is rotating at about 1,000 miles per hour. Now, 93 million miles away, there's a giant ball of gas that is on fire. This is the sun. Don't worry, the gas is supposed to be on fire. And the giant ball of fire that we call the sun emits a tremendous amount of light. And that light travels very, very, very fast. In fact, light travels approximately 670 million miles per hour. That's crazy. Or 186,000 miles per second. Now, it takes about eight minutes for light to travel from the sun to the earth. And this light gives earth life. In fact, 99% of all the energy on the earth is taken from the light created by the sun. The earth converts approximately 4 million tons of energy from the sun every single second, which raises an interesting question. How does the earth convert the light into energy? That's a very good question. Thank you for asking the question, church. I know you're curious people. Well, the primary way the Earth turns light into energy is through a process we know as photosynthesis. Yes, photosynthesis. I feel like I'm in ninth grade physics class all over again, biology, here we go. But photosynthesis is the process by which plants are able to convert light into glucose, the fuel plants need for energy. Glucose is to plants what gas is to your car. Now, in order for photosynthesis to happen, plants also need water, something the sun also provides. The light provided by the sun heats the waters and the oceans and bodies of water. They evaporate, float up into clouds. They come over to the plants. They drop their water on the plants. You got water, you got light, you got photosynthesis. Converts to glucose, which is energy. Photosynthesis provides energy to the plants, and that provides energy to the cows. 
then when we go and eat in and out to get our energy provided by the cows, we are good to go and we're powered by the sun. It's crazy how this all works. Light is necessary to life. If you're in and out burger, your double doubles to mean anything. We need the light that comes from the sun. Crazy. And it would be tempting for us to hear Jesus' claim this morning to be the light of the world through this lens, this modern lens of physics and energy and light, but we should remind ourselves that Jesus likely didn't know about the speed of light. He probably didn't know any theories about photosynthesis, and he certainly didn't know how delicious an In-N-Out burger was on a Friday night when you didn't want to cook dinner, but we would do much better than to understand what the imagery of light represented in the Jewish scriptures You see, Jesus, after all, is a Jewish rabbi, and in our passage this morning, he's speaking with Pharisees. These are Jewish theologians, if you will, or pastors of his day. And so what we have to do is try and unpack what did Jesus mean when he talked about light? How is light represented in the scriptures if we're ever going to be able to unpack exactly what Jesus was saying? You see, light as a metaphor is utilized throughout the Old Testament. Light is used to represent the presence of of God. It is used to represent the glory of God. And light represented not just God's presence, but God's salvation to his people. The psalmist writes in Psalm 27, "The the Lord is my light and my salvation. God's word and law is said to be a a light to guide the path of those who cherish his instruction. The Messiah in Isaiah is said to be a light to the Gentiles that he might bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The Israelites were to be a light to the nations. God promised continual light on the last day when he would come again in Zechariah. And so you have all of these resources within the scriptures themselves sort of uh, converging into our text this morning. But of particular interest is how these various biblical images of light converged into this party, into this festival or into this feast that Jesus was attending when he uttered the words of our morning's passage. Imagine with me for a moment tens of thousands of people converging to a single place for a multi-day celebration, erecting temporary housing for respite due to all of their partying and singing and dancing. Imagine Coachella, but instead of a music festival, it's a religious festival. For those who don't understand the Coachella reference, imagine Woodstock, but less drugs and crime and all these types of things. But, and instead of RVs, they have these palm branch forts for the week's dwelling. This is what's happening here. You see, when Jesus makes his declaration to be the light of the world, he does so at what is known as the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths, or in Hebrew, Sukkot. That's just a Jewish word that means tabernacles or booth. The Feast of Tabernacles was one of the seven major feasts on the Hebrew calendar. There were spring feasts and there were fall feasts organized around the sort of agricultural cycles of planting and harvesting. Planting in the spring, harvesting in the fall. The spring feasts in the Jewish calendar were Passover, which we're aware of, unleavened bread, then first fruits, and then Pentecost or Shavuot. The fall feasts were trumpets, then atonement, then tabernacles. 
the Feast of Tabernacles and was the last feast of the year and the last of all of the fall feasts. And as the last of the fall feasts, it was the feast that took place just after the final harvest of the year. The feast, at least in part, was a celebration of God's provision and abundance from this year's harvest. And so thousands of pilgrims in the first century would pour into Jerusalem for this eight-day feast. Man, I wish we did parties like this still in the church in 2020. But the Feast of Tabernacles wasn't just a celebration for that year's harvest. It was rooted in a memory. It was rooted in the memory of how God's people were established in that land after centuries of slavery. And we see how deep uh, that this sort of memory about how God has freed his people took place in this feast by identifying three practices that took place during this eight-day celebration. First, we see it in their housing. You see, the people gathering for this week of feasting and partying were instructed to create these makeshift shelters or sukkots that would house them for the week. They would often create these shelters, these temporary housing units out of palm branches and various things that they would find. And these were they sort of represented how their God had cared for their people many centuries earlier when they had journeyed in the wilderness to the promised land, to the land of harvest and abundance. That is, there's this story about how God freed his people out of slavery in Exodus. And between that sort of point in time, that moment when they're freed from Exodus out of Egypt and into the promised land, they stand in the wilderness And there's not hotels, there's no modern day highways, there's no Airbnbs in the wilderness. And so the memory is that God's people had to build these temporary houses that they would move from place to place along their journey. And this practice of building these types of temporary makeshift shelters was a way to remember the humble beginnings of God's people. And during the eight days, there were also many sacrifices and singing and special rituals. There was one ritual, actually, that took place every evening, which is like, this is the craziest thing that I can picture, like, religious people doing, right? But in the temple courts, the place that represented God's presence with his people, there were these four golden bulls that were mounted on four golden lamps. Some historical accounts suggest that these bulls were placed on these lamps about 75 feet in the air, which is crazy. And every evening, priests would place logs, wood logs in those bowls and douse them with oil, or we might do with gasoline. And they would light them up all night long. It was said that every house in Jerusalem could see the lights of these candles burning during the tabernacle feast. And while these were burning, the people would sing and dance by the light of the fire all evening long. Historical accounts, in fact, record that during these evening gatherings, the people would shout, we are Yahweh's, our eyes are directed to Yahweh. Some historical accounts even suggest that they would literally party until dawn. They would light these things when the sun went down and they would party till the sun came back up and go hang out in their palm branch forts in the morning to rest. But the fire that illuminated the city each evening of the feast recalled the people's experience of the exodus when God's presence led them in the wilderness. 
as Exodus writes, by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. That is, the people of God, as they're journeying through the wilderness, are led by the presence of God that is represented in this pillar of fire. And they're reminded each evening that God is the one who leads us in darkness. As they followed the light of God, they were led into the new life in, pro- in the promised land. But there was this third ritual that would happen during the Feast of Tabernacles that sort of unpacks the meaning of the feast for us. The eight days all built up to the last day when the high priest would take a pitcher of water and a pitcher of wine and pour them together over the altar while the crowd sang and chanted, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the temple. Now, Hosanna means God save us. This was a ritual of thanksgiving. God had saved the people from slavery in Egypt. This was a prayer for God's provision in the upcoming year. God, save us in the coming year that the work would sustain our lives again. And it was a pray for God, prayer for God's leadership. God, save us from our sins. We have offered sacrifices all week. God, save us. God, save us. God, save us. And it's on the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles that Jesus says to the people the words that we read this morning. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is claimed to be the light that the world, not just the Israelites, will follow to have life is a bold declaration to all who heard it that the God who saved the Israelites out of slavery had come to save not just the Israelites, but the whole world. And Jesus' declaration this morning is that I am the one who will save the world. Whew, that's kind of a buzzkill at the end of a party and celebration that the people are having. And this is why the Pharisees, they confront Jesus immediately after this declaration to be the light of the world. His claim is ridiculous if you really think about it. It's audacious. But if the Pharisees would have been paying attention at all to what was going on around the life and ministry of Jesus, they probably would have recognized its validity and its truth, but they don't. So they confront him with this weird sort of legal argument and technicality as they approach him. There is this tradition within Jewish society, not unlike our world today, that any sort of witness testimony needed to be confirmed by multiple parties. Witness testimony needed to be delivered at least in pairs, if not more, two people saying the same thing, bearing the same witness, the same account for an event or for in a person. And so they confront Jesus. You can't make a claim by yourself, dude. Come on. You need someone else to bear witness to the claim that you're making to be a legitimate claim, to have legitimate, valid testimony. And so Jesus states that he does meet the legal requirement for his testimony because when he witnesses to himself, it's like the father is witnessing about himself as well. So they got the father, you got the son bearing witness about the same things. But Trinitarian theology isn't really developed until like hundreds of years later. So they're sort of confused about what all is going on here. And they just get angry and they get into this whole argument with Jesus. Like, dude, you can't say these types of things. It's awful that you're saying that you are God, et cetera, et cetera. And it sort of culminates to the end of John chapter 8, where we just read that the Pharisees get so upset, they grab stones to kill Jesus, and Jesus is like, hey, I'm not trying to have that conversation. I'm out of here. I'm out of here. It's amazing how many people tried to kill Jesus. It's crazy. But what's interesting, though, 
This is the fascinating part of the text to me. It's in the very next chapter of John's gospel, Jesus does present to the religious leaders a second person who gives testimony that he, Jesus, is the light of the world. If you flip over to John chapter 9, we discover that Jesus is fleeing the Feast of Tabernacles because all the religious leaders are trying to murder him. And as he's leaving, he passes by a blind man. This guy has been blind since birth. His parents attest to this, at least throughout John chapter 9, is that he is born without the ability to see. And the pervading thought in the first century is that if somebody had some sort of physical limitation or disability, then it was probably the punishment of God that was coming upon them because of their sin or somebody else's sin that they knew. But Jesus sort of dismisses this crazy idea, just like this isn't about somebody's sin, but this, is, this man's limitation is the very thing, though, that will reveal the glory of God, that will reveal the work of God. Total side note, extra credit here. This is a different sermon. But if you're in here and you, you have failings and shortcomings and weaknesses, these things that cause you to limp through life like you just aren't quite your full self, no, that sometimes those are the very things that God does his best work with to reveal his glory. You see, one of the challenges that we, ha we have in the church is we have this sense that we have to pretend like we have it all right, we have it all together, we have it all going on. How are you doing? I'm good. Blessed, brother. But one of the, the things that, that robs us of as a church is that God does his best work with those aspects of our lives where we find weakness and shortcoming and failure. In fact, Paul writes it in Corinthians that when we are weak, he is strong. We need not be ashamed of our weaknesses. We need not be ashamed of our blindness because those are the very things that God is going to do his best work with. All right, back to the sermon. So Jesus is about to heal this guy, right? But what's of special importance to us this morning is that just before Jesus heals him, he says these words in John 9, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Drawing all the readers of the gospel to what he just said in the previous chapter, in John chapter 8. And so Jesus stops by this blind man, spits into some dirt and makes mud, wipes it on the guy's eyes and tells the man, hey, Go wash your face off now in the pool of Siloam. Crazy, weird miracle story. Why Jesus couldn't just do like, you're healed, or like abracadabra, or wave a wand, I'll never know. But Jesus spits in the mud, wipes it on the blind guy's eyes, and tells him to wash it off in a particular place. There might be something in here about transformation and being obedient to Jesus' commands and teachings, but again, that's another sermon. So this blind man who lived his entire life in darkness, in one interaction with Jesus, literally has his whole world illuminated. And the people, they can't believe it. 
They begin to argue whether or not this is the same man who's been blind and a beggar his entire life. They would see him walking around town, going to the grocery store, grabbing things, greeting people, beginning to recognize him for the very first time. And they begin to scratch their heads like, how? He was blind his whole life. Like, how does he see now? And people around the town, they're like, well, that, that just looks like him. That's not actually him. We all know, even in the first century, blind people don't just start seeing for no reason. And just an FYI, when Jesus gets a hold of your life, people will not believe the transformation that takes place. They will call it fake. They will say it's a facade. They will say that this is just a season or something that you're going through. But when Jesus comes for real into your life, transformation takes place. And there will be, as the kids call it, haters that will come into your life and say, no, 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 you've been a non-Christian your whole life. You can't follow Jesus now. You can't be a pastor. You can't be a worship leader. You can't be a youth leader. You can't serve. You can't proclaim the name of Christ for yourself because you've been blind your whole life. You can't change your mind now. But this is what happens when Jesus shows up and saves This is what happens when the light of the world enters into the darkness of our lives as we become seeing blind people. And so they ask him, dude, I think this is you. How did all of this happen? And the blind guy says to all of his friends, he's like, I don't know. This guy, Jesus, spit in the ground, rubbed the mud on my eyes. I washed it off, and now I see. It's crazy. And the people, they're so confused by this man's testimony that they bring him to the Pharisees which is an interesting detail in John's gospel. You see, throughout John's gospel, the sort of religious leaders who are opposed to Jesus are often referred to as the Jews. These, but here in John 8, Jesus gets into an argument with the Pharisees, and here again in John 9, the blind man is brought to these very people who are arguing with Jesus. You need a second witness to bear testimony about your claim. Ironically, this guy's brought to the Pharisees. And they begin to pepper this guy with all sorts of theological questions. Who is this one that saved you? Is he a sinner? How can a sinner do this? We know that this man is evil. How can he do all of these things? They even bring this guy's parents into the conversation and into the chaos, into the inquiry. Has he been blind his whole life? Was it just part of his life? Is this a recent phenomenon that sort of went away and now he has his sight? Like what is going on? Surely the Pharisees, surely the people can explain all of this away if they just have all of the right information, ask all of the right questions. And as the chaos of the scene sort of crescendos, the blind man speaks up in one of the most famous lines in John's gospel. He says, I don't know who this Jesus guy is. But I do know one thing. I was blind and now I see. This is the second witness that bears testimony that Jesus is the light of the world. At the conclusion of John chapter 9, Jesus seeks out this seeing blind guy. (laughs) And he asks him and invites him, hey, would you believe in me? You see, the blindness that Jesus came to save this man from was not merely his physical sight. It was about his spirit and his life as well. And how many of us feel that we're sort of fumbling through life like a blind guy, like a blind lady, 
in our marriages, in our careers, how we use our free time, the things that we invest our life into, the things that we pull meaning out of in in our lives. We just feel like we're just fumbling through it, making it up as we go. I mean, how many of us have aspects of our life that reside in darkness? The shame, the guilt, the inner thoughts that we never share with the people around us, those habits that we try to hide, the tendencies in our personalities that we know are wrong. See, we are the blind man. We live in darkness and Jesus comes to us with a gospel proclamation I am the light of the world. Where you were blind to the truth about God and yourself and your neighbors and the world and life, I can illuminate to you a life that is full and rich and good and true. If you're sitting in this room and you're wondering where true living comes from, hear it as clear as day as I can say it. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus can illuminate your life and the darkness that characterizes so much of it. And his invitation to you this morning is the same that he extended to this man centuries ago. You need only believe in me. And we as a church bear witness to this truth about Jesus. Amen. We are the blind man in John chapter 9. We are the people who have met and encountered Jesus, who is the light of the world. And man, there are some stories in this room that we can share with you that would blow your mind, but they would bear witness to the truth about Jesus. We can tell you stories about he physically healed people when we prayed for them. Many of us in this room can bear witness about who we were before we met Jesus and who we were after we met Jesus. We were blind and now we see. We were selfish and now we are selfless. We were empty and now we are full. We were greedy and now we are generous. We were addicted and now we're free. We were resentful and now we're forgiving. And the list goes on and on and on and on. Can we all answer the complicated theological questions that some people want to throw in our direction? Not all of us, but we do know this. We encountered Jesus and he changed our lives. That is the one for sure thing we know as followers of Jesus. And if you would only believe in him, he too can change yours. But here's the thing for those who follow Jesus or at least claim to follow Jesus. We can only bear witness to Jesus if he is the light that brings us life. We can only ever bear witness to the truth of Jesus in a very dark world if we ourselves draw on the light of Christ as the source of our lives. And church, your witness, our witness matters in the world. And the question that comes to us this morning is, does your life draw on the light of Christ as its primary source? You see, the ironic thing about this story is that the religious goody-goodies of his day totally do not recognize Jesus. They miss him entirely. They knew the scriptures. They did the worship services. They're there at the Feast of Tabernacles doing all of the right religious activity, but they still cannot recognize Jesus. They cannot recognize God because they can do all that stuff and they miss Jesus. He's not the source of their life. It is the one who draws on the power of God in their life 
and actually believes that bears witness to who Jesus actually is. Church, we need to draw our lives from the light of Christ. Like the earth, perhaps, silly story that somebody was telling us about, (laughs) draws its life from the sun, so too we draw our life from the sun. And when we do, when we actually follow the light in the darkness, when we actually follow the light in the midst of the dark world in which we reside, our lives bear witness to the truth about who Jesus is. And this is our primary vocation as the church. Bear witness to Jesus and who he is. I want to just end on one last thing. One of the most important things that we can do as a church, that you can do as a church in your workplaces, in your relationships, friendships, neighborhoods, where you have your hobbies, whatever it is, is bear witness about the goodness of Jesus in your life. To bear testimony that you were this and now you are this. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to understand some of you just like Trinitarian theology. When I said that, just went right over your heads. You don't have to know any of that stuff. You don't have to understand the Jewish festivals. You don't have to understand any of this stuff. But what you do have to have a grasp on as a church is just a simple fact of what Jesus has done in your life. And so many of us spend so many years of our lives doing church and the religious thing. And we look after 10 years and it's like, I was that. And I'm still kind of like that. But when Jesus actually comes into your life, when you actually draw your life from the source that is life, it changes everything. It transforms everything. And when you bear witness to that in the world, blind people become seeing people. And this is the kind of church that we want to become. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, you are the light of the world. You are the only source of light in the world. You are the source of true life, a full life. This is our honest proclamation and declaration as a church. And our longing, Jesus, is to be an extension of your light in a dark world. And as we, as a church, offer ourselves before you, as we we try to learn to live our lives as you would live our lives, our longing is that we might experience the transforming work that comes with being in relationship with you. Perhaps Jesus. There are some who've been in church for years. Perhaps this is their first time in a church this morning. And they want to commit to following the light of Christ. Give them the courage to step into that decision with boldness. And may they experience the transforming work of God in a new way. We thank you that you are our, the source of our life. Continue to be so in this year. And it's in your name, Jesus, our Savior and Lord, that we pray. Amen.